0: Good morning. It's good to see everyone today. I uh, saw a number of you walking in the doors today, kind of humming a tune. I'm trying to remember the words to it Rain, rain, go away, come again. Some... Okay. Yeah. Wow. You know, uh, I, I've got an elders meeting this week. Do you think it might be a good idea for me to propose? that we build a dock out here so we can start riding our boats or something, you know, when we come to church, it's like, boy, this amount of rain, and it's uh, looking like a good portion of this week, it's stretching out in front of us too, they're saying, So, so more of the same, all right, but if it was too dry, then we'd be saying, where's the water, so we got it right now. John Ortberg, some of you, uh, that name will ring a bell. He has written a number of books, Christian books, and uh, in one of those books, he tells a story about a man who returned to his childhood home after having been gone for 20 years. And so, you know, he went into the house, and he walked through the various rooms of the house. He even went up in the attic, and up in the attic, he found a jacket. Uh, that he had had when he was in high school. And uh, he reached into the pocket, and he found a, a little receipt in the pocket that was dated 20 years earlier when he had left a pair of shoes at the shoe repair shop. and uh, But then he had forgotten all about them, and he had never picked them up. And so here it is 20 years later, and so he decides, well, on a whim, I'll go ahead and go down on the main street drag and just see if that shoe shop is still in business and so he went down there with his ticket and sure enough the sign was up and it was still open uh, but he thought well surely the guy that owned and ran the place isn't around so he walked in the front door and he recognized the guy from 20 years earlier of course obviously you know 20 years older now and so he went up to him and he presented the receipt to him and he he said, by, by any chance, do you still have these shoes? And the old fellow said, well, let me go in the back room and check. And so he walked in the back room, and he was gone for a couple of minutes, and, and then he came back up to the front counter, and he said, sure enough, still got the shoes. They'll be ready for you on Friday. <laughs> <laughs> uh, procrastination procrastination you know it's so easy to do there's some procrastination in all of us and there's a whole lot of procrastination in some of us you know and a lot of times it really isn't that big of a deal you know it comes to a haircut you know well I want to get a haircut this week but what if it gets put off I get busy and it isn't until next week or maybe even the week after Now, I know there's some in here that would argue with me, well, that's a big deal, but I mean, really, is that a big deal? You know, if you procrastinate getting a haircut and you push it off a little bit, that would be one of those things that I would say wouldn't necessarily be a big deal, but there are some things in life that if you put them off from one week to another week, that can be a major deal. Last Sunday, we started this little short three-part series that's entitled, The Clock is Ticking, and we started talking about the second coming of Christ, and one of the things that I really wanted to get established is that his second coming is going to be very different than his first coming was. The first time that Jesus came, you could say, in a manner of speaking, he flew under the radar, because uh, the majority of people in the world let alone right there in Israel, they weren't even aware of it, that he had come. He came in humility. He was born as a little baby. It was a small town, Bethlehem. How many people were notified about his birth? Well, I mean, Mary and Joseph knew about it, right? And There were angels that, of course, knew about it, but otherwise, it was some shepherds on a hillside, and that was about it. And so in a very real sense, Jesus flew under the radar in his first coming. Well, in in regards to what the Bible says concerning his second coming, it is going to be anything but under the radar. It is going to be spectacular. It is going to be with a trumpet blast and the voice of the archangel, and the Bible tells us that every eye will see him. Now, this is going to be something that's not going to escape anybody's notice. And the Bible you know, speaks so loudly and clearly about it that one in every 30 verses of the New Testament addresses the subject 318 times in all in the New Testament, his second coming is referenced. The Bible has a, a lot of attention that it gives this subject The sad thing about it is that a number of Christians have taken it along with a few other aspects of eschatology, which eschatology is simply meaning the study of the end times. People have taken the whole idea of Jesus' second coming and in view of some of the other eschatology, the times and and sequence of events and and all this, and they've created so much contention over it that in our day... Now, all of a sudden, in some circles, it has become a test of fellowship. People argue about this, and there are heated debates about it. And so much of the time, the hubbub has all to do with timing and sequence of events. Quite a few years ago, we had a young guy that uh, came to our church. I guess it would have been 21, 22 years ago because he started attending the church, the, uh, and his parents did, and it was just him, the very first year when we opened up. So we were a small church, and I got to know him real well, real likable young guy. And uh, after he had graduated high school, he uh, um, was going to go to Bible college. But to him, it was important that he would go to Bible college somewhere where on the weekends and all, there'd be something scenic and fun to do, and so that meant not northeast Kansas, okay? So he, he, he had another area targeted, and he named the Bible college to me, and it didn't ring any bell, and I started asking him a few questions about it, and I could tell that he didn't know a great deal about it, and I encouraged him to do additional research, and meanwhile, I did some of my own and back in those days, the, the Internet wasn't as expansive as what it is today, but, but all the same, it was still there. And so as I was doing some searching and, of course, found the website, you know, to this Bible college, um, everything seemed harmless enough in what I was reading. It was a typical um, undergraduate you know, Bible college, and the typical number of credit hours you would need to get a bachelor's degree, and, and the classes didn't really, you know, create any kind of alarm, the typical things that were required for a freshman, and so forth, um, as I was reading through all that, and and I don't know all the terminology on this, because I'm not a techie guy, but, but you know, I went four or five layers into it, and so it wasn't like just right away something that, that popped into my attention, but You know, I had to go um, a little ways into it. And then I started reading about um, upon completion of when you would get your diploma at the end of your time in this Bible college. And I noticed there was this little asterisk there that I just thought, okay, you know, I, I learned a long time ago that you can't ignore all these asterisks. And so I chased it down to see what it had to say. And, and what it was explaining is that even upon completion of the necessary credit hours in order to get whichever of the degrees, the bachelor's degrees that you were getting, you would have to sign a particular document that had to do with their views of the end times. And and your signing it would be that you would be in agreement with it and that this is what you would teach. And uh, you know, and and, and I saw what, what it was claiming, and you know, and I knew where that would take a person and everything, but regardless of even you know, if it was something that you know I tend to lean toward. Myself personally, I had a problem with that, and I brought it up to his attention. and And I said, "You just need to be aware of this. But even after all of your work and everything, you may not end up getting a diploma at the very end unless you're willing to agree to this." But but basically, this Bible college had made it, in a manner of speaking, a test of fellowship. They were saying, "It's our way or it's the highway." You you take you take our path, our belief, specifically on this, or even after you pay all that money and you get all those credit hours and the good grades and all of this kind of stuff, you still won't get a diploma in the end. Some churches have have been similar in making it a test of fellowship. I've seen a number of church signs over the years, now that I've ridden my motorcycle to all 48 states um, here in the U.S., uh, and, and I always notice church signs for obvious reason. That's You know, there's always something that you always notice. You do personally, and the person next to you does. Well, churches are one of the things I always notice. And I look at the church signs. And, and I've seen signs like this before. And I'm not saying this to pick on Baptist churches because there are some really solid Baptist churches out there. But there are some others that... Um, I would have some issues with. This particular one is making it clear that if I walked in their door and I was carrying this particular Bible, I probably would not have any opportunity to read or teach from it because it doesn't fit with them. It has to be the 1611 KJV, as you see toward the top of that sign. Well, that's beside the point. You look at what's right underneath that, and that word, whether you recognize it or not, is a term regarding a certain sequence of events um, that pertain to eschatology, the end times. And, and I've spent, you know, time studying, you know, premillennialism, postmillennialism, post all-millennialism, and each one of those has several variations, you know, underneath their umbrellas and all. But, but basically what this church is saying is that if you come to this church, this is our view of end times. Now, it doesn't necessarily say that it's going to become a test of fellowship, but it does have that potential there, that if you're going to pursue things in that church, that you've got to agree with them on this particular doctrine, this particular view that they have. And I see that that as being so unfortunate. Because that's not what the Bible emphasizes. You know, that is far from being something that the Bible is emphasizing. The sequence events of the end times, the date in which Jesus is going to come, And then immediately what's going to follow that? And then what's going to follow that? No, that's not what the Bible puts emphasis on. As a matter of fact, we looked last week at Jesus making this statement in Matthew 24. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father alone. You know, and I might have pointed out, I only pointed it out in one of the services last week, and I didn't make a note, and I can't remember which service it was, but um, if you stop and you think about it, all of the different predictions that have been made for over the last 2,000 years, and I did reference many years that there were predictions that were made, this is going to be the time that Jesus is going to come. Pretty much every century, there were multiple ones that that I found. Um, they all share this one thing in common, they were wrong. Every one of them was wrong. The Jehovah Witnesses, they uh, really kind of got big into this uh, at the tail end of the 19th century into the beginning of the 20th century, and there were multiple dates, and those dates just kept falling by the wayside because it didn't happen, but then they'd right away be setting another date, up there and and one of the big dates that they really pushed was 1914 and it was such a big date that there were people that that personally in their own lives took measures of of you know um, their homes their livelihoods stuff like this they made changes because of this particular date in 1914 but 1914 came and went and nothing happened however the organizations leaders said, well, actually, the second coming did happen. It was just an invisible coming. (laughs) And you can look into the beliefs of Jehovah's Witnesses, and you type in 1914, and you'll be able to read that for yourself. You know, they still hold to that, that Jesus came, but he just came invisibly at that time. And it's so unfortunate that people get caught up in, in all of that, because that is not where the Bible is emphasizing for us to go. Here is what we need to be on our toes about. And it's in that very same context, that very same context, Matthew 24, verse 44, Jesus says, So you also must be ready, because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect Him. And this is something that is emphasized over and over again in scripture. As a matter of fact, you could say it this way, and I will for our outline, we are to live our lives in a state of readiness. This is what the Bible teaches. In that very same context where Jesus said, the verse that I just put up there, and also the verse that no one knows the day or the hour, we also have this statement in the New Century Version. It is worded this way. So always be ready. Because you don't know the day your Lord will come. So it's not just an isolated verse here or there that references the need for our personal readiness. There are multiple passages that talk about this. We need to be living with our eyes open, thinking ahead to what could happen at any time. It reminds me of the woman I read about who had a reputation for thinking ahead. She was always trying to be prepared, you know, ahead of time. And, and uh, so she regularly told people that it was her goal in life, by the, the end of her life, to have married four different men. And that, that was her plan. She said each one would help her in the four areas that she needed help. One area she wanted to marry... Uh, a guy that was a banker another one was she wanted to marry a guy that was a movie star another one she wanted to marry was a preacher and lastly she wanted to marry a funeral director (laughs) and when someone asked her said why why these four and her response was one for the money two for the show three to get ready and four to go We all need to be thinking ahead. Maybe not like that, but we need to be thinking ahead. One of Jesus' parables really hit the nail on the head, and it's this one in Matthew 25. And I'm going to read that, so uh, feel free to join me there in Matthew 25. There's actually three different parables found in this chapter. Chapter 25 immediately follows chapter 24. So there's lots of passages here talking about the end times and the second coming of Jesus. And, and so, you know, that, that is a major part of the theme of this section of the gospel of Matthew. And so this particular parable, I think, uh, really ties in to what it is that we're talking about today and the emphasis that is found in the Bible in regards to this whole idea, this whole notion of readiness. Here's the way it reads. At that time, the kingdom of heaven will be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Now let me just pause there for a moment. This translation uses the word virgins. Some of you have a translation there that uses the word bridegrooms. The actual Greek word that is being used is just talking about maidens. That, that probably was one of the most uh, traditionally accepted ways of referencing them. Maidens. We're talking about unmarried daughters. Okay, so that's why some would translate it virgins, some would translate it bridegrooms. They were basically serving in the role of somewhat of a bridegroom in this parable. Verse 2, five of them were foolish and five were wise. The foolish ones took their lamps but did not take any oil with them. The wise, however, took oil in jars along with their lamps. The bridegroom was a long time in coming and they all became drowsy The virgins who were ready went in with him to the wedding banquet and the door was shut. Later the others also came, sir, sir, they said, open the door for us. But he replied, I tell you the truth, I don't know you. Therefore keep watch because you do not know the day or the hour. You see, Jesus told that whole story. And right at the very end, it's very clear what his point, what he was driving toward. You got to be ready. You need to be ready. Now the story seems a bit odd to us because it's not really a part of our experience of of what leads into a wedding. But back in that day and time, that was their culture. This is what a Jewish wedding. It was very commonplace that that particular scenario of bridesmaids waiting. Being ready to join the groom when he would appear. And I'll explain that a little more in a moment. But, but that, that was very commonplace. And so it was something that people could relate to. There are three very good reasons why the second coming should be described in association with a wedding. I want to say this first because some of us may look at that and think, well, that's kind of weird. Why are we talking about the second coming and using an analogy about a wedding? Well, three reasons. One, a wedding does well in portraying the close relationship between Jesus and the church. As a matter of fact, multiple times in Scripture, you will find that the church is referenced as being the bride of Christ. You know, just like a, a groom and a bride and there's that close relationship, well, the same is true with Christ and the church. The church, of course, being people, Christians, believers, The church, uh, that term is never used in the Bible in reference to a building. It's always talking about the believers. So the believers, they they make up the bride. As a matter of fact, one of the passages where you have more concentrated verses than any place else in the New Testament in talking about the role of husbands and wives and how they relate to one another is found in Ephesians chapter 5. And I would assume that all... Uh, Christian premarital counselors use that particular passage. I know I always do with every couple that I'm preparing for an upcoming wedding because it talks about the way the husband needs to um, love the wife, the the way the wife, um, the bride needs to respect her husband and and it talks about those dynamics. But it's really interesting in Ephesians 5 when, when you're reading down through that and it's talking about how the husband needs to love the wife like this and that. And, and, but then all of a sudden Paul interjects. He says, but I'm talking about Christ in the church. However, you husbands, you love your wives. And so, so in his mind, he knew that the principles of what he was talking about here, they very much apply in regards to the groom and the bride, whether that be among people or whether that be in reference to Christ and the church. And so, so the analogy, it fits for that reason. Another reason that it works well is that a wedding is an event that is marked by happiness and rejoicing, and you know that. You look back and think about your wedding, you know, however many years ago that might have been, You think about all the smiles that were associated, all the laughter that was a part of that, all the hugs. It was a joyful event, whether we're talking about yours or your your child's or your grandchild's. You know, these are celebrative moments. As a matter of fact, I would even throw out there um, a very familiar passage that you probably never, ever thought about being associated in any way with a wedding um, is John chapter 14. We um, talk about this verse sometimes at funerals and all. It's one that we're, most of us are acquainted with, where Jesus said, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I'm going there to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come back and take you to be with me, that you may be where I am. And actually, what's being described there isn't that that much different than what is behind this particular parable. And where the groom was, and then he appears, and then where he's going, you know, it's, it's kind of talking about. And you think about the emotions, the emotions are very much the same, very celebrative, very joyous. As you think about that, you're thinking about in glory going to your eternal home. And, man, that just creates and stirs up all kinds of joy within you, very much like what a wedding does. You know, the thing is, this one's eternal, This is going to go on and on and on. Another reason that the analogy works really well is that a wedding involves making lots of preparations. Now, some of the guys that are in this room, you are totally oblivious to the amount of preparation that went into your wedding, okay? Because I've done some of your weddings, and I had my own, and I I know, you know, how, you know, you're just kind of nodding and, you know, oh, yeah, oh, hey, uh, do you mind if I get up right now? I need to go use the restroom in the middle of premarital counseling. You know, because you're talking about details about the ceremony. You know you're not making many of those decisions, right? A lot of preparation work. Now, some guys, they really will get into that. But a lot of times, no, it's, it's the bride that really gets into those, those details. And there is a lot of work. I mean, whether you're talking about the clothing, the flowers, the food, the guest list, the invitations, the the pictures, the cake, the rings, the premarital counseling, and I mean, that's just a starter list. There's a lot of work that that goes into it all that you got to sort through and you got to think through. As a matter of fact, I had someone that I'm getting ready to do their wedding in August, and and here about 10, 11 days ago, they were in my office uh, for one of their premarital sessions. And uh, we had a little bit of small talk at the very beginning. And and then she broke out in a great big smile. She goes, oh, I got some good news. Our flower girl was just born. <laughs> yeah, and they're getting married in August. But she was so excited about that. And, and it is big news in the family. This is like the first grandchild, you know, in the family. And it's a close family, and, and they're really geared up about it. But, you know, it, you know, if she's going to be the flower girl, it probably would work a little more smoothly if she was born, you know, and instead of not being born. Um, I know now they still got to work out the stuff about her walking and stuff like that. But, you know, I think she's going to be a quick study. The hard part's done. So, uh, but, but you think about all the, the details, the preparation that goes in to a wedding. Well, that's Jesus' whole point in this parable is the necessary preparation to be ready. Preparedness is not a small thing. It's a big part of this parable, and it's a big part of reality when it comes to Jesus' coming back. As a matter of fact, one of the things that this parable teaches loud and clear is that a lack of preparation will be disastrous? That is the that is a good word to use. It is disastrous. In ancient times, Jewish weddings, uh, a wedding celebration would take place in the groom's house, and it was customary for the groom to uh, go out and fetch his bride when preparations had been in place and made, and all this kind of stuff. Um, for, for the groom to go get his bride from her parents' house. And that's where the bridesmaid, some of her friends, would join her. And you never knew exactly what hour of day that was going to be, so that's why the lamps and all of this. And it ended up being a, a celebrative grand uh, procession that would take place. And that's what we're reading in this passage. But it wasn't that uncommon for it to be delayed. Because sometimes the preparations, you know, would take a little bit longer maybe, and, and the groom would be a little bit later than what had been planned, so there would be an extended passage of time. And, of course, they didn't have cell phones. They couldn't text and say, hey, we're running an hour late. There wasn't any of that stuff. And so as you were waiting for him, you really never knew exactly when to expect his arrival. And so the level of alertness had the potential of fading a little bit. And that's exactly what is happening here in this passage. Now, this long wait, it clearly is depicting the long time that the church has waited for the Lord's return. I mean, you stop and you think about it, it's been right close to 2,000 years since uh, the time that it's recorded in, in, in the New Testament, you know, with Jesus' ascension, that he's going to be coming back. It's almost been 2,000 years That have passed. And so the question, you know, that probably comes to a lot of our minds is, why the delay? Well, we'll get to that in a minute because there actually is an answer to that. But before we get to that, there is just a little bit more I want you to see in this parable of Matthew 25. And all three of these lessons I'm going to share with you, they reinforce this readiness emphasis All right, here's one of the lessons. Someone else can't prepare for you. And that's a biggie. We need to get that understood. To say it another way, preparedness cannot be transferred from one person to another. These five bridesmaids, they really weren't prepared. So they tried to lean hard on the other five who were. Well, it just doesn't work that way. Their preparedness cannot compensate. You can't ride their coattails. Like that. Jesus had emphasized, you know, earlier in the previous chapter these words so always be ready because you don't know the day your Lord will come. And so you can't rely upon someone else. Two Sundays ago, if you were here in one of our services or if you tuned in online, you know that we had the parent-child dedication on Mother's Day Sunday, which is a good thing. We've been doing that ever since uh, the very first Mother's Day when the church had started. And and it is a good thing because we want to support families in the raising of their children and in the creation of an environment that is conducive for reinforcing the Christian faith and helping to plant those seeds of faith and nurturing that so that those children will one day make that all-important decision to embrace Christ. But the thing that clearly needs to be understood when we do something like what we did on Mother's Day is we were not making the decision for those little kids. The parents were not up here on stage making the decision for those little kids. Your mom and your dad, way back when, when you were one of those little kids, kids you know 30 40 60 70 years ago your mom your dad they could not as much as they would have wanted to they could not make that decision for you someone else cannot prepare for you that is something you need to do And so the whole thing that we were doing on Mother's Day is is making a commitment that as parents and grandparents and as a supporting church family, we're going to do everything we can do to be that positive influence and to help reinforce things in such a way so that these young people will one day make the all-important decisions that they need to make spiritually in their lives. Another lesson that we learn in that chapter, that that parable, is that good intentions aren't enough because these five bridesmaids that ended up on the outside of the shut door at the end of the parable, they had good intentions, but good intentions aren't enough. The third lesson that we learn is that relying on last-ditch efforts is a bad idea you know, thinking, oh yeah, I've got time. I'll, I'll do that. Oh yeah, I plan on. I mean, I could tell you stories about, you know, like a high school buddy of mine that that was exactly what he told me. Our senior year, that was the first year after I gave my life to Christ, and and I I was trying to encourage him so much, you know, spiritually, and he finally just said, Brad, I mean, he even came to church with me a few times, and. And he said, Brad, I understand what you're trying to do, but I just want to have my fun first. And after I have my fun, then I'll settle down and I'll do what you're talking about. Unfortunately, in less than a year, he died a tragic death. And he never did get to that point of that all-important decision. Last-ditch efforts is a bad idea. Don't put off getting ready. I mean, that's one of the things that you learn in reading that portion of Scripture. Now, having said all of that, we've got to ask the question, you know, what does being ready look like? You know, because we can talk and talk and talk about this particular concept and all nod our heads and think, oh, yeah, the Bible clearly says that. But, okay, but what does it look like? What exactly are we shooting for here? Now we're ready to explain the delay. Why, nearly 2,000 years have passed, and yet, to this point, Jesus has not returned yet. I told you last Sunday, we were going to come back to 2 Peter chapter 3. We talked a little bit about it last week, but we do need to address it today. Here's the way Peter kind of opens things up in this chapter. He says, first of all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing, And following their own evil desires, they will say, where is this coming he promised? Ever since our fathers died, everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. So there's going to be some people that are going to be making fun, making light of this whole belief that you and I have in the second coming of Christ. In saying, wait a minute, wait, what you believe what... Decade after decade has gone by. Century after century has gone by. Where is he? They haven't seen him yet. You know, it's that kind of a notion that Peter is saying there will be people that are are like that. Now Peter is going to help address why this is happening. Why there's seemingly a delay in Jesus' return. A couple verses later in that chapter, he says this. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Let me read that sentence again, because that's, I think, the key sentence in the passage. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar and the elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. And we talked about that last part last Sunday. But the key to, to the answer here as to why there is seemingly a delay is that the Lord is patient. He does not want anyone to perish. He wants everyone to come to repentance. Do you remember what the Bible tells us about how um, heaven responds every time someone repents? Do you remember that scripture? It's Luke chapter 15, where Jesus told three parables in a row. He told the parable of the sheep, the parable of uh, the lost coin, and the parable of the father who had two sons. And like when he's talking about the sheep, he says a shepherd had 100 sheep. One of them wanders off, is lost. The shepherd leaves the 99. He goes out on an all-out search until he finds the lost sheep, and then he brings it back. He calls his shepherding buddies together, and they celebrate because the sheep that had been lost has now been found. And right after Jesus tells that story, which again was a slice of life back in, in first century Israel so that wasn't something that anyone had to stretch their imagination they had either lived it or they had heard stories like this but Jesus on the tail end of telling that he says in the same way there is more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 who don't need to repent Jesus is basically giving people a glimpse into the window of heaven and he's saying there is a party in heaven every time someone down here repents of their sin that's how hyped up and excited they get and expressive they get and then jesus told the second parable he said that there was a woman who had 10 coins and she lost one of those coins this is luke 15 And it's probably part of a dowry. It was a pretty common thing in the first century. It had ten coins as a part of the headdress. And uh, uh, she lost one of those coins. Had a lot of sentimental value. She searches and searches for it until she's able to find it. And then she calls some of her friends together. And they celebrate because the coin that had been lost has now been found. And then Jesus tacks on this thought at the end of that. He says... In the same way, there is more celebrating in the presence of the angels over one coin that was lost that that then is found. He's a little more detailed in the way that he says it's in the presence of the angels. The first time... After talking about the sheep, you could think, oh, the angels are really getting into it. The second time, he's saying, well, it's in the presence of the angels. Who's in the presence of the angels? It's the the one seated on the throne. God celebrates every time that someone repents. You see, this is how much he values people making this all-important decision in their life. And so this is why the delay, the apparent delay, you know, has taken so long. At first glance, the fact that 2,000 years have passed and he still hasn't returned could cause some people to think that he has forgotten about us. But it couldn't be further from the truth. Just the opposite is true. He hasn't forgotten. No. He is certainly thinking about us. And this isn't something new. I mean, even back in the Old Testament, this was part of the heart of God. You look at passages like Ezekiel 18, verse 23, it says, Do you think that I like to see wicked people die, says the sovereign Lord? Of course not. I want them to turn from their wicked ways and live. This has always been the heart of God. So what does being ready look like? What does it mean to be ready, well, based on what we're seeing here in Second Peter chapter three, it means that you've turned from sin and you've turned to God. That's what being ready is. You know, the word repent is is kind of talking about a U-turn. It's an about face. It's like you're heading one direction, you're living life for yourself, and you know, sin is very much in in mind but to repent is you turn you turn from sin to god toward god that is repentance and that's what this passage is saying that this is what god is waiting for this is what god wants to see this is what god celebrates when it happens When we turn from sin and we turn toward God. It's more than just feeling bad about our sin. It's more than just feeling sorry about our sin. It's actually turning from the sin and turning toward God. It involves embracing Christ. And as a result of embracing Christ, receiving forgiveness. All of those teaching points are interconnected in the gospel. It's a chain reaction that happens when we do this. Jesus came to make it possible for us to be restored to the Father. This is how John's Gospel begins, by making this statement. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. John spells it out. It all hinges on where you're at with Jesus. You know, if uh, if you haven't received Him, what that passage is talking about, then you're not ready for His return. This is a fundamental teaching that is found and emphasized in the New Testament. As a matter of fact, John wrote more than the Gospel of John. He wrote the other books that bear his name, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. In Greek class, back when we were in college, we didn't actually have a textbook. We just used the book of John, our professor. The way he explained it was, out of all 27 books of the New Testament, 1st John is written with the most basic Greek I mean, it's, it's, there's no big 50-cent words. Actually, there are a couple of big 50-cent words in 1 John. But by and large, it's simple Greek. And so that was our textbook while we were in there. And when you read through 1 John stuff, it's like John, I mean, he just spells it out in black and white. There's no confusing what it is he's saying. Look at what he's saying here in 1 John 5, verses 11 and 12. He says, the testimony is this, that God has given us eternal life. And this life is in his son. All right? Didn't lose any of us yet, right? This, this is eternal life, and eternal life is found in Jesus Christ. That's the point that he's making. Now, look, look at the next sentence. He who has the son has the life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have the life. Now you understand more why in John, the Gospel of John chapter 1, he talked about how important it was that we receive Jesus. This is the New American Standard, by the way. It's the most literal word-for-word Greek translation that we have in English. And there's nothing complicated about that. Being ready involves embracing Jesus Christ, turning from a life of sin and turning to him. But yet, like I said, procrastination, there's some of that in all of us. Maybe I ought to add a fourth point to uh, that parable um, of the bridesmaids. You know, we had these three points. Someone else can't prepare for you. Good intentions aren't enough. Relying on last-ditch efforts is a bad idea. Maybe I'd add this. You probably don't have as much time as you think you have. Because that's the way it played out for those five in the story. Sometimes we can always think we got time. That, oh, we got good intentions. One of these days we're going to do this. Don't have that attitude. Don't be that gambler. Being ready is embracing Jesus Christ. I don't have a date for you as to when he's going to come again. And I'm not even going to try to attempt to explain to you premillennialism, post postmillennialism, and the various variations of each one of those views oh I've got my own personal opinions on them but but that's all they are is opinions I I kind of like to take the um, approach that I had a professor in college that was a whole lot smarter than me that he took on it after he talked about some of that he said you know what in the final analysis the stance I take is I'm a pro pan millennialist I'm all for it and it's all going to pan out in the end Because he understood that what really matters is Jesus. That's why Jesus is the heart of the gospel. If you don't have Jesus, you're not ready. There is one last thing I would like to tack on to this. Because it needs to be on there. Being ready is turning from sin and turning to the Lord through embracing Jesus Christ but being ready also includes doing what you can to help others do the same you remember on that occasion when Jesus ascended and went into heaven and they were all standing and staring up in the sky and then the angel said what What are you guys He's. what are you doing looking up there he's going to come in the same way he's going to split the sky and he's going to come in the same way that you've seen him leave well you know on that occasion what were the very last words jesus spoke before he left the very last thing jesus said to them you will be my witnesses in jerusalem judea samaria into the ends of the earth he said this is what i want you busy doing this is what i want you to be all about you are my representatives And if what we're seeing in Luke 15 about what stirs the heart of God to celebration is repentance, and if what we're seeing in 2 Peter chapter 3, that this explains why there is a, quote, delay in Jesus' second coming, because he's waiting for more people to turn from their sin and to turn toward God, the reality of the matter is that explains why you're still here, why I'm still here. Why weren't we snatched up into heaven once we made the decision and we embraced Christ? We're ready for eternity. Why, why didn't he take us home? It's because now we get to be a part of that whole process of influencing others to make that all-important decision. The people that you work with, the people in your extended family, the people in your circle of friends that you've had for 20-plus years in your life, It's not just coincidence that those people are in your life. A number of, a percentage of those people don't know Christ. It's not just by chance. You have the relationship that you have with them. God has you where you are for a reason. And being ready for his return not only involves that you are pursuing a deeper relationship with Christ, but along the way that you are encouraging and bringing as many with you as you can. That's what is emphasized in the Bible. So during this time of communion, I want you to pray about that. I want you to think about it. First of all, I want you to think, have you yourself made that all-important decision for yourself to accept Christ? If you haven't, don't procrastinate. Don't put that off. Pull me aside. Pull one of the staff aside. We would love to be able to walk through that with you and to pray with you. And if you have made that decision in your life, then I would encourage you, to to be sensitive to who God is putting on your heart that you need to reach into their life and to be an influence on them and to encourage and inspire them spiritually. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the fact that we can open the cover of the Bible and we can read something that pertains to some teachings that were 2,000 years ago and yet there is relevance because it speaks to our lives today. Father, help us, help us to take it to heart and help us to, to, to reflect on it in such a way that your spirit is able to bring conviction into our lives to move us in a meaningful way to be very much a part of what 2 Peter 3 is talking about. Making it possible for Jesus to return because more people have made that all-important decision. We celebrate Christ and the difference he's made in our life and we pray for that difference to also be made in the lives of those that we know our acquaintances. It's in Christ's name I pray, amen.